Why do people get married? For a long time here in the West, people got married for security, to enhance social status, to perpetuate a family name. Think of the opening line of Jane Austen's fabulous book, Pride and Prejudice. Does anybody have the first line memorized? It's quite famous. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune is in want of a wife. Now this approach to marriage, security, status, heritage, it has a long history. But things have changed in America. In our society, the purpose of marriage has shifted from that to companionship. Unless I'm married, I am bound to be lonely. Now this is a message we continually come out, that continually comes out in our music, in our movies, in our magazines. Instead of Jane Austen, Think of The Wedding Crashers, a crass movie I do not recommend. Claire asks John, what's true love? And John answers, true love is your soul's recognition of its counterpoint in another. Claire then says, well, that's a little cheesy, but I like it. And John responds, yeah, I read it on a bumper sticker. Now, making light of it in a frivolous movie, but at the end of the day, this is the bedrock of marriage in our culture. Marriage is for personal intimacy, for friendship, for companionship, for romance. And Nicholas Sparks has made quite a living writing well-told stories based on this premise. But in the Bible, we see a fundamentally different purpose of marriage than either the contemporary view or the traditional view. If you have a Bible, I hope that you do, turn to the first book, Genesis. Um, If you don't have a Bible, if you don't even own one, most um, hotels provide one for your taking in the little bedside counter. I encourage you to get a Bible. It's quite a remarkable thing to read Scripture. And if you have one, I encourage you to bring it to church with you. Um, it's good to get used to looking in the Bible and to reading it and to get familiar with it. The first book of the Bible, the second chapter is actually where I want you to turn, Genesis chapter 2. Now in Genesis chapter 2, we come across the very first negative comment in Scripture. And it's remarkable all the more Because Genesis 1 is so filled with positive comments. In fact, seven times in Genesis 1, God stops what he's making. He looks at what he's made. And these words come out of his mouth. Anybody know? It is good. Seven times. It's this refrain. It's like waves of the ocean crashing on the seashore. But here in Genesis 2, we're looking at Adam standing in the Garden of Eden when suddenly for the first time God stops what he's doing, looks at it and says... It is not good. Something is not good. Verse 18, Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then God creates Eve, woman, Adam's wife. And we have the origin of marriage in the Bible. Now, if we can discern what was not good we can understand something of the original purpose of marriage, of the natural and true purpose of marriage. We can discern the grain of the universe when it comes to marriage. Why is it not good for Adam to be alone, for man to be alone? Why did God create Eve? For what purpose? What drove God to institute 
marriage. Now to hear this passage of scripture correctly, we need to remember one basic rule of interpreting literature. Context, context, context. You see, Genesis 2.18, this sentence, it is not good that man should be alone or make a helper fit for him. The sentence doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. It doesn't just suddenly appear. It has a context. Now, if you don't read it in its context, you'll do what you always do when you interrupt somebody's conversation and you haven't been listening to what's been going on. You make assumptions. You bootleg in your own prejudice, your own agenda, your own ideas, your own views. Genesis 2.18 is a line of dialogue in the middle of a scene, a scene that begins back in verse 4, Genesis 2 verse 4. In Genesis 2.4, we learn that the scene is God's creation of the world. And then in verse 5, we read, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So here's the scene. God is creating the world, He's, and he creates humans, man, to care for this world. This is why humans are made. It is our fundamental reason for existing, to make something of the world. This is our birthright. It's the privilege and the responsibility that the Bible tells us God has given to us. We are responsible to exercise power, to use our abilities to create, to cultivate, to form and to fill. To develop and reshape the world that we find before us. Take the world that is given to you and make something of it. Bring something out of this world that was only there in potential. This is the fundamental task. And the greatest power that God has given to humans. It's what we were made to do. So Adam has this enormous responsibility. This incredible dignity. That has been entrusted to him by God. Take care of the garden. Now it's in this context that God takes a look at the garden. And that little old Adam standing bemused in the middle of the garden. And God says, I can see it is not good for him to be given this job while he's alone. It's not good, not because he's lonely. You see, we've made a grammatical shift. Not that he's lonely. Alone doesn't necessarily mean lonely. It can mean lots of things. Lonely is what our culture has prejudiced us to read into this word without even recognizing that we're closing off other interpretive options. It's not good that he should be alone. Why? For the emotional sense of loneliness? It doesn't say that. It's not good that he should be alone. Not because he's lonely. He might have been. He might not have been. That just doesn't have anything to do with the story. It's important in life. It just doesn't have anything to do with this story. Quite simply, the issue here, the job is too big. This is why he's given, notice what? A companion? No. What does God make for Adam? If loneliness was the issue, God would have made a companion. But loneliness is not the issue at hand. The issue at hand is a job too big. So what does God make for Adam? A helper. A helper fit for him. Do you see how our modern overemphasis 
on loneliness has driven us to deny the very words of Scripture. So he made a helper fit for him. Now, if he was lonely, if that was the issue at hand, then God could have given him a a companion to sit with him on a garden bench, to hold his hand, so on. And and no doubt, perhaps that would have been, perhaps Eve was very good at that. We're just not dealing with that here. She is given to him as a helper, which simply means one to come alongside so that together they can do the task assigned. Now here we have the purpose of marriage as God intended it. Marriage is for the purpose of serving God. Marriage is a gift for the purpose of serving God and his agenda in the world. So to have a marriage in line with the grain of the universe, we must dedicate ourselves not only to our marriage, but to something outside of our marriage. Now think about this in contrast to some of the responses that our society, and to be quite honest, our churches provide to the epidemic of failed marriages. Think about how so many of the books on marriage today, books inside the church and outside the church, how they focus on the relationship of the husband and wife, communication, conflict management, keeping romance alive. I'm not saying that's bad in and of itself. We do need help in those areas, and those areas do matter to marriage. But the problem is that we have subtly shifted one of the blessings of marriage into the driver's seat of marriage. Shelby is a blessing to Janelle and I, five-year-old son. On a family trip, if we take that little five-year-old blessing and put it in the driver's seat of the Suburban, that would be bad. It would lead to a wreck. Now, the answer is not to kick him out of the car. The answer for him to find his place. And his place is not in the driver's seat. Our creator created marriage for a reason and companionship is simply not the primary fundamental purpose of marriage. So our response to the epidemic of bad marriages has majored too much on trying to help people build and sustain relationships, get this, without giving them an outward looking marriage. Without addressing this issue that marriage works well when there's good communication, all that stuff. But if it is only focused inward, it is denying its basic nature. Marriage works well when it is outward focused, when it is looking out to what? To God's agenda, to God. When God is the greatest reality, when God outside of the marriage is the gravitational center of the marriage, This is the fundamental issue. Now, with all due respect to Claire and John and the wedding crashers, Jesus Christ is not, I'm sorry, Jesus Christ is your only soulmate, not your spouse. You will see when we read scripture, Jesus, he hungered, but he fed thousands. He alone is the bread of life. 
Yes, he did thirst in Scripture, but he also cried out, If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. In his flesh he was wearied, but he alone is rest for those who are weary and heavy laden. He prays, but he hears our prayers. He weeps, but he calls his tears to cease. He was sold very cheaply, 30 pieces of silver, but he redeems the world. And not at a cheap price, at a great price, the price of his own blood. As a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, but he alone is the shepherd of Israel who has become the shepherd of the whole world. As a lamb, he is silent, but he is the word. He is bruised and wounded, but he heals every disease and every infirmity. He is lifted up and nailed to the tree. But that tree becomes the tree of life and he restores us through it. On the cross, he's given vinegar to drink that's mixed with gall. But remember, he turned water into wine. He is the destroyer of of bitter taste. He is sweetness and altogether to be desired. He dies, but he gives life. And by his death, he alone destroys death in all of its forms. Now, marriage was not created to do any of that. And to turn your marriage into that is idolatry. Marriage was not created so that we could gaze forever into the eyes of another human being and find in him or her all that we need. Only Jesus Christ is the bread of life. Now, I'm not saying husbands and wives shouldn't work for a healthy relationship. What I'm saying is that we need to remember that our marriages are instituted by the Creator in the context of our service to the world, not in the context of our emotional, social needs. So when we make the relationship between the husband and the wife the fundamental purpose of marriage, when we make intimacy the goal of marriage, when we make it the end-all reason for being married, this approach to marriage is sinful because it is idolatrous. And furthermore, it's not only wrong to change the purpose of marriage, it is foolish The results are disastrous. Like I said, put Shelby in the driver's seat. He goes from being a blessing to something else. Is intimate companionship a part of marriage? Absolutely. I'm going to preach on the relationship of erotic, romantic love to marriage next week. But when you put a five-year-old in the driver's seat, you have a wreck. And when you put companionship as the primary purpose of your marriage, you will have a wreck. When you approach marriage assuming that the fundamental and primary purpose of marriage or any of these other things, you are sowing the seeds of the destruction of your marriage. Now, why is that? For one reason... Whenever we look to our spouse to satisfy our deepest longings and hungers, to be all that we need, we will undermine our marriage because our marriage will become a means to our own selfish searching for personal fulfillment. Love has become a means to an end. It's become a boomerang for self-satisfaction. It's this view of marriage that leads to shallow Brief, intense relationships. 
You see, when we give unbridled primacy to the man-woman relationship in marriage, when we begin to work on the relationship of the husband and wife for its own sake and not for an outward purpose, then we begin to think that marriage is there to meet my needs. And what do I do when it fails to meet them? I seek a divorce. I seek a new mate who can promote my growth, my self-actualization. When we assume that the purpose of marriage is for companionship, we inevitably redefine love. Love comes to mean, I love you, comes to mean, you meet my needs. I love you comes to mean, you scratch my itch. And of course, that kind of love is destined for tragedy. Because it turns the person I love into a means for my own gratification. Do you like being treated like that? Do you like being used? Do you like being used for good purposes? No. Being used, period, is awful. It's a form of self-idolatry. It says that I person, the person I love exists for me, to gratify me. I am at the center of the universe. A couple-centered marriage will inevitably incinerate. It will dissolve into a self-centered marriage. Now, instead of lovers, you have a pair of parasites feeding off of one another in the name of love. Ironic, isn't it? We live in a society that has a higher than ever expectation for what marriage will give us. And at the same time, we live in a society that has a higher than ever divorce rate. And the church, we're playing right along. We're just trying to do it better than the world, communicate better than the world, focus on each other better than the world. But we need to challenge the fundamental paradigm. A great need for marriage today is to learn to have a purpose beyond the marriage. And unless a husband and wife have a purpose for their marriage beyond being together, their marriage will become a hell. Marriage is a vocation for serving God and his purposes in this world. Now, if you're married, by all means, pursue intimacy with your spouse, work to communicate and communicate well, learn to resolve conflicts, but do not stop there. And don't let that become your overall goal. What we must do is learn to set the primary purpose of each marriage as serving God in the world. For marriage to work, to work well, a family must have a transcendent purpose. Something that transcends their relationship, their house. Their family. A family must have a transcendent the purpose for coming together, remaining together, and raising children. And this transcendent purpose is given to us in Genesis 2. Marriage, according to the grain of the universe, must be deeply characterized as gracious and outward focused. If you're married, have a conversation this week. Ask one another. How is our marriage outward focused? I really encourage the couples in the room to do that. And be brutal. In what practical, real way is our marriage generously outflowing its boundaries into the world? In what way are we serving God and his agenda married that we could not 
as singles. And again, I'm not saying we need to turn from our marriages in order to serve God. I'm saying we need to recognize that the only legitimate, healthy way to turn into your marriage is if it's in the context of serving God in his world. So two quick, practical ways that everybody in the room, whether you're married or single, can work this into the fabric of your life. One for the singles and one for the marrieds. Start with the marrieds. In your worship guide, there is a brochure that we have worked for months on, and yet we still got the date wrong. It's remarkable, isn't it? And I'm not saying it was all Kelly's fault. (laughs) I had something to do with it. Look, in... uh, Four weeks, it's September the 15th, September 23rd. That's not true. Scratch it out. Erase it from existence. The 23rd does not exist. September the 15th. In four weeks, our church has its annual celebration. This is very cool, all right? Um, We just ordered a whole bunch of round tables. We're going to fill up this room. We're going to eat. There's a chili cook-off. By the way, we have the privilege in our midst today is the husband of last year's Chili champion. Jeremy Shepard is here. She, and she got a hat, a chili hat, a giant chili pepper that she hung up on the wall at her work. Here sits the Chili champion. Some of you might be able to compete. We feast, but we also look back at what God has done among us. God has done incredible, incredible things. Do you know that our church hasn't yet finished its third year of existence? That, that less than four years ago, there was a group of like 13 adults sitting in a living room. We now own this building. We own the mortgage on it. We've renovated. We, I mean, God has done remarkable things. We're going to celebrate what's happened over the past year, and we're going to look to what God is going to do among us over the the year to come. Now, to prepare for the annual celebration, you have four jobs to do there on the front. I just want to draw your attention to to the second one and the third one, time. Now, on the inside of your... um, It sounds like all this was a setup, but it wasn't. It just this morning I realized I had a great practical way to apply this. On the inside, these are... There's listed here over 150 opportunities, 150 because some of them have more than one. We need more than one people to sign up. Ways you can serve God in his kingdom through the church. Now, serving the church is not the only way to serve God in the world. I'm not at all saying that. But I strongly encourage husbands and wives and families over the next four weeks and singles, sit down and go through this and prayerfully commit yourself to something outside of yourself. And it'll be inconvenient. Maybe not the first or second time you actually do what you sign up for, but probably the 18th time when the um, puppy love has worn off and it's just a grind. Do something outside of yourself. And then also we ask you over the next four weeks to prayerfully consider how you're going to tithe and present offerings to God through His church. Look, God owns everything, including all of your money. How are you going to steward that? Now, the purpose of marriage is to serve God in His world. How does your marriage allow you to do that? Now, to the singles. 
The gospel reading I read, Jesus says, there are many legitimate reasons to not get married. Many legitimate reasons. Like I said last week, if you're single, you're not in transition. You're not waiting to get married. You're not incomplete. You're not nearly there. One is a whole number, all right? There are two vocations in this world when it comes to this whole issue. One is a calling and a gift and a grace to be married. And one, the other is a calling and a gift and a grace to be single. It is legitimate in and of itself. If you're single, you have a wonderful opportunity to bear witness to our society that Christ is the bread of life. You have a wonderful opportunity to witness against a central idol in our society that human beings supply what we need at their most basic level. You have a great opportunity to demonstrate to the world that Jesus Christ is the hope and he is your significance. Some of you are singles in transition. Some of you are singles Wanting to get married. And let me just say, if you want to get married, that's probably a pretty good indicator that that's a calling in your life. Not always, but oftentimes it is. If you want to get married, go for it. God can sort you out if he doesn't want you to be married. If you don't want to get married, that's a pretty good indicator. Don't get married. Now, I'm not, obviously, it's more complex and there needs to be lots of declaiming and subpoints under that. But my basic issue is this. If you're pursuing marriage, if you're a teenager and you want to get married, if you're a college student and you want to get married or you're a widow or you're in the middle of life, make your decision to get married based on mission, not loneliness. If you make your decision to get married based on loneliness, you will incinerate your marriage. The true marriage that our souls need and the true family our heart wants is not in humans. It is in the Lord. If singles don't have a fulfilling love relationship with Jesus, they will put that pressure on their dream of marriage. And their dream marriage will subvert their real marriage. If singles rest in and rejoice in their marriage to Christ and open their heart to intimate friendship and fellowship in the church and accept that happiness is not the end all of life. Look, if you think that marriage is going to solve your happy problems, talk to people who've been married. You see... I don't have time to go into it now, but one of the reasons we've shifted the view of marriage to companionship is because we believe in America that happiness is a right and a goal of life. But at the center of our faith is a cross. And if you're married or you're single, you've got to learn to have a cruciform theology, to embrace the cross and to carry suffering. And God will give you that gift somewhere. And when you're single, that pain, you have to learn to embrace it in a healthy way because when you get married, you're going to find relational pain that you have to embrace in a healthy way. Singles must realize that the very same idolatry of marriage that distorts single life will distort married life. And think about this. If you are dating 
And if the purpose of marriage is to serve God, only date and marry a Christian or you're doomed. If your partner does not share your faith, your partner cannot understand your faith. If Jesus is central to you, then that means your partner does not understand you at your core. He or she cannot understand the mainspring and the motivation of marriage. And how can you build a marriage on the foundation of serving God if your partner doesn't share that view? And I'm talking to those who are on, this, on, the, on the front side of marriage. Now, if you've already done that, if you've already married someone who doesn't share that view, the answer is not divorce. The answer is not despair. The answer is take up your cross and follow Christ with that suffering. But for those of you who have not yet married, you should never tempt love with a non-Christian. And whatever you're calling, to be single or to be married, there is work to be done. There is a garden to be tended. There is order to be maintained and fruitfulness to be fostered. And when a married couple can hear this personal calling by a loving God who has for them a part in the glorious purpose of his kingdom, when they can grasp this, then their marriage can be filled with a vision of shared usefulness to the Creator. They work together to build a marriage in which faithful love overflows in fruitfulness beyond the boundaries of their marriage. Let's pray.